past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. Horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, fashion's untold stories. Amanda Harlick, creative consultant, writer, and longtime collaborator of Karl Lagerfeld, connects with Andrew Bolton, head curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute in New York City. The conversation was led by Tim Blanks, editor-at-large at The Business of Fashion. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? I'm uh, in my living room, um, hopefully immunized by the curtains to the sound of foxes mating in the garden. But uh, I just wondered, where, where are you two tonight? Amanda, where are you? I see Byzantine fragments behind you. I know. I'm right at the top of the house, which is the upstairs study, which is the quietest, I'm hoping, part of the house because both my children are at home and it's quite noisy downstairs. So... I thought I'd retreat up to the eaves. Andrew, where are you? As if I can't guess. <laughs> I'm in my closet, which is the quietest place in the apartment. So I'm hoping all, all of the my sweaters and uh, suits might muffle all the sounds. Now, it's been such an unbelievable year. At the beginning of 2020, what did you imagine was going to happen for you this year? I felt extremely optimistic on New Year's Eve last year. Where did you think you would be and where are you now? Yeah, I, I really believed, you know, the roaring 20s. I, I thought, OK, here we go. You know, 2020 is going to be about breaking all the rules and there'd be some sort of a revolution and there'd be extraordinary artistic expression and freedom. And I was really excited Andrew? This year was meant to be the, well, it is, the Met's 150th anniversary. So it was a whole year of celebrations around the museum with various exhibitions and various events. So we we were looking forward to to all of those and they slowly went away bit by bit. I, I think, given what we just said, it's been a year of extraordinary ironies and... It's such an irony that the exhibition you were going to launch to celebrate the museum's anniversary was called About Time. And this whole year has been people confronted by time. It's suspension or it's Groundhog Day, eternal recurrence or whatever. It seems like a golden opportunity to reflect on fashion's ability to reflect a moment, unwittingly, maybe, 
But I wonder how you feel about that. Yeah, it was extraordinary, Tim, because I think that you know, if the show had opened six months ago, it really wouldn't have had the same resonance or relevance that it does now. And you know, and the idea behind it was a really simple idea. It was just, it was a Met's 150th anniversary and I wanted to do an exhibition that was really based on our permanent collection. But I didn't want to do a straightforward masterwork show. And I love timelines. I find timelines really comforting. So it started off initially about doing two timelines. One was a straightforward chronological timeline from 1870 when the Met started to 2020, focusing on the sort of ephemerality of fashion, notions of novelty and change, uh, very much like a Baudelaire idea of, of, of fashion. And the second timeline was this sort of disrupted or interrupted timeline. And it was very much inspired by um, Virginia Woolf and Virginia Woolf's novels. And, and it was really through her that I got to know the works of Bergson, Henri Bergson, the, the French philosopher who talks about duration and this idea of the past and the present coexisting together. When Woolf talks about it, it's very much about her inner duration, you know, how the time of the mind is very separate from the time of the clock. So I feel that was, in a way, the most prescient part of the exhibition because I feel we've all as you say have gone through these moments of where time is expanding and contracting but I think more than anything else we've made this idea of this, the subjective time of the mind compared to the objective time of the clock it's so much more sort of real now than it ever was before so I think that I found that that's become the most relevant part is actually wolf and the wolf component of the exhibition. Amanda, I, I think of the conversations we've had over the years, and I don't know how you feel about it, but it's like a consummation of so many things that have been in the air, you know, the, the challenges that fashion has been facing over the past few years. The relevance of fashion has become something that people have talked about. And then this year happened on so many levels uh, the pandemic, and then this incredible surge of, of social activism, Black Lives Matter, and, and then an election. This must be a moment where people who think about fashion have had a lot to think about. A lot. I mean, it's been introspective, but also I think we all felt that the bubble had to burst because what was happening was the, the idea of, you know, fashion as this meaning change meant that it changed faster and faster and faster. It's like whirling at this mad dance. And it seemed to, to me to be forgetting its meanings or its dance steps. It was just about the next and the new and actually not connecting where it came from or why, really. So on many levels, it has been a sort of drawing to attention and actually taking account of what fashion means on every level, you know, whether it's about its cultural resonance registering or how it's made, why it's made. I mean, I'd bring climate change in there too with Black Lives Matter, you know, as much about our concept of time, whether it's linear and, you know, the midwife astride the grave or whether it is about the vertical and that epiphany, that match struck in a crocus, you know, everything that Wolf, I think, has taken from Bergson, from, from Einstein, you know, the relativity of time. But, you know, and she's so right. And I was really, instantly in parenthesis, astonished that Eliot's four quartets came after her work. I mean, 
time present and time future. And also that sense of the dance and the still point of the dance. And I do think that, you know, fashion has, in a sense, been stilled. And we're now feeling all its different points like a radiating star. So potentially it could be much greater. But, you, you know, you mentioned original connections there, fashion's original connections. What were fashion's original connections? It feels to me that's something that Andrew has explored constantly in his work. But what, what do you feel fashion's original connections were? My feeling always as a woman is it's about the way you want to be and the way you move. So in Andrew's brilliant introduction to the the catalogue, which is the nearest I've got to the exhibition, we can't wait to see it, it's really important how not only how the outward shape of women changed, but it was always very much about how how women could move or were allowed to move. That's a wonderfully sort of physical um, direct interpretation of what fashion meant to the women who consumed it, I guess, and the, the men who designed it. Uh, although I think what Andrew's always done is, is find a, another level, a more sort of maybe it's spiritual or... Oh, totally, yeah. At least conceptual. And it feels to me that this show almost unwittingly crystallizes that notion when you, Andrew, when you look back at, at what you've done, are you surprised at your own intuition? Um, within this particular case? Yes, yeah. Definitely. But, I, you know, I think that what it also has made me realise, it's made me look at the sort of the encoded ideologies of fashion, I think. So beyond ideas of change and ephemerality and obsolescence, the ideologies such as, class and power and luxury and I wonder whether with this moment in time with the social justice movements and obviously Black Lives Matter whether those encoded ideologies will change and should change so that it made me reflect more on those actually to oddly enough going through the exhibition because you know you you had this linear timeline of fashion which you know is just this chronology of fashion from 1870 and the bustle the princess line to the Jigo sleeve to you know the 20s chemise and it, it takes you through these changes and the fact that one of the defining characteristics of fashion is change and is ephemerality and then the interruptions in a way are trying to halt that time in a way and it's not about it's not about repetition it's about reinterpretation recontextualization the actual pairings but it made me reflect much more on what have been the encoded ideologies of fashion and what are the questions we need to ask ourselves to change those ideologies so it made, it made me reflect on it more politically i suppose and from a more sociological perspective than a spiritual perspective which is where i normally come from this has made me think so much more differently about my job um, and about what I should do going forwards and what exhibitions should look like going forwards. Oddly enough, it's, it's made, me, made me think about it differently, less spiritually, actually. It, it sounds like you've suffered a sea change, the inescapability of everything that's been happening in the, in the world around us and, and the daily kind of reckoning with, <laughs> with despair, basically. How does that affect, when you're looking at something as resonant as the history of clothes or the history of fashion. How does that change the way you look at things that you 
once thought of in a very clear way, and now suddenly you have to reassess them in terms of all this, these other things that you're being illuminated about. You know, you mentioned power and class, and, you know, then you go beyond that and you're looking at exploitation and really deeply ingrained injustices. I, I would say it would be, in a way, in a wonderful moment to be a curator like you because you're in a position to actually change history in a way. Well, I think that's, it is, that's really exciting. And I think that's probably what I mean. It's made me, I think it's maybe more aware of not only fashion social responsibility, but also how I can use my voice or my platform to affect change. That, and not, not particularly change social or political change, but it, it made me realise that going forward, I think every decision I make has to be informed by race and ethnicity, which it hasn't. You know, even with looking at the curation I did for about time initially, I looked at the curation and realised that I didn't have very many BIPOC designers in the original lineup because I was making decisions based on what is the best silhouette from this period and what is the best pairing. So it was pure, it was aesthetic. It was an aesthetic and emotional selection, I suppose. And during Black Lives Matter, I looked at this curation and changed it not not dramatically but there was always a lot of ray was represented yoji but very very few black designers so i did revisit that and it just made me realize that you know going forward when i do curate you know race and ethnicity in a way needs to be part of my intellectual framework and i think more than anything else it's made me think about what are the stories we should be telling now readdressing the received narrative of fashion and looking deeper into these hidden stories, these untold stories, and reevaluating those practices. So I, I think it's digging deeper. I think just dig deeper and shift paradigms and facilitate cross-cultural conversations, address these past, you know, these difficult heritages and these difficult histories, and not rewrite them because you can't, but in a way, looking at alternative histories, untold stories, hidden histories. So that's where my mind is at the moment. That's where I'm sort of like trying to sort of where I'm heading. And in your exploration of this, you have found an untold history, have you? You have found a history that has been willfully ignored or unwittingly suppressed or what? Looking at the 19th century, the American system is so different from the French system. So there were so many anonymous dressmakers in in America and, you know, they were nameless, they were unknown and even designers who've been forgotten. There's somebody who was a very well-known dressmaker in the late 19th century, early 20th century. She was African-American and she was the first freeborn of her family and she earned her living as a dressmaker. So a lot of these designers who have been forgotten in history and who, whose light shone so brightly for a short period of time and had a big influence and even it was a regional influence. So I think it's sort of decentralizing fashion, um, decolonizing fashion and looking at these stories that in a way complicate the received history of fashion mm. and complicate this monolithic view of fashion, which tends to be just the greatest hits. So it's just in a way, creating a more nuanced approach to fashion history and a more fuller approach to fashion history. I believe clothing is infused with stories. It's true that there's this whole resource of untold stories, which I would think must be 
so exciting, especially in a moment where storytelling has become this almost like a sort of lip service notion in fashion, but still that, that it's how you entrance an audience. It's how you draw them in. And Amanda, I, I know that your antennae for the new, your antennae are always spinning. When you head out into the world, are you seeing all these young designers who are taking on board the weight of history and then refracting it through their personal experience, their family experience. Like Race Wales Mona. Alawalia and, yeah. and Bianca Saunders. I mean, what's your sense of what is happening on that level in fashion? I mean, as Angie said, it is about digging deeper. It's about seeing. It's about seeing more everywhere all the time. And I think there are designers who are coming forwards now whose collections, and we can call them collections still, their expressions are so connected from where they come from, how it's made. I'm fascinated by the history of textiles. And I think that, you know, even in collections as amazing as what's the Met, for example, there are all sorts of, you know, stories that have actually woven into the dyeing processes, the weaving processes, how embroideries were taken, how embroideries were developed, all of those which hark back to different cultural, if you like, hierarchies of fashion. I think it just opens up and up and up. It's like this huge kaleidoscope and you dive in and see more and more and more. It's And it's totally thrilling and we just... We just got to open up and just embrace everybody and listen and hear and see everybody. And I, it's thrilling. And it's like, okay, people, let's go. And it's not about becoming the billion dollar designer with the licenses. It's about creativity and the love of creativity and the defiance. Exactly. Yeah. The defiance yes. of defiance. creativity. And that's what I think has been so interesting about this year, this defiance generally has become a modus operandi for a lot of people. And it's such a, it feels to me like a, a healthy response to what has been happening in the world over the past few decades, uh, that actually anger is an energy. And I'm really, really curious about how the world's major curator feels that he will, the major fashion creator feels he will move forward in incorporating that into whatever he does next. I mean, how, how do you take this forward for an institution like the Metropolitan Museum? I think, I think it's about creating a more inclusive definition of fashion. You know, I think it, it's, it's sometimes about literally starting, starting from scratch in a way. Like you and Amanda, I've been really fascinated by how designers would respond to this moment. And I think what is, to me, is the most encouraging, it's about individuality in, in, in lots of ways and individual creativity and individual ideas, but it's also like community. And I, th- I feel that has been really elevated, these ideas of community and collaboration. And I found that really heartwarming. And if you're in a privileged position, if you're working for a big brand, I think, you know, one should have a responsibility to work with younger designers, to inspire young designers, to mentor young designers, to collaborate with young designers. It's what Rebecca Solnit said about community between makers will get us through this. I just feel it's like slowing, it's like the wave, the remorseless, you know, like as the waves make towards the pebble shore, so do our minutes hasten towards the end. It's sort of been 
somehow stilled. And it's almost like in that as Virginia Woolf, which is a slice right through it, but it's also very Jamesian. And, and it's like, where do these things come from? Why? And I find that thrilling. And that, that connection between hand and vision. Mm. I, think, I think so too. And I think that yeah, there has been a, much, a bigger shift to sort of the ethics of fashion and the value of fashion and putting values back into fashion. And without it being come by or worthy, it's fundamental. It's, it's becoming a fundamental part of creativity. And I find that really, really interesting. People kept paid it lip service before, but now I think it's become so much part of their process and their thinking. And I wonder whether there's more of an em- there'll be more of an emphasis on local resources. And I hope so. You know, there's a parallel with food. You know, you slow it down, but also you you know where it comes from. Absolutely. And it's a, I think it's a real. I think it's a time to like think big and think differently, and a time for idealism in a way. And fashion's always been very good at reflecting the times, but I think now it's changing to reacting to them. There's a change, a difference from reflecting the times to reacting to the times. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile fashion's evil with fashion's good? Mm. You look at the history of fashion and it is white. As a curator, the idea of looking back into history, not changing narratives, but creating new narratives and creating new definitions, it, it makes it more personal in a way, you know, because you come across pieces in the collection that you, I mean, one, we have this one piece in the collection that I, over, I always overlooked. It was a very simple cocktail suit from 1943. And when I was working on the exhibition, you know, I overlooked it again and again and again. And for some reason, I don't know, I just, one night I looked at it in more detail and the story was fascinating. It was, it's actually a suit that was made in 1943. So during the Make Do Amend sort of initiative. Uh, so a year after the US government launched restrictions and it was made by a local New York dressmaker in response to an initiative from Harper's Bazaar where they were asking dressmakers and to go into their closet and repurpose clothes. Oh, is that the tuxedo? It's so brilliant that you put with the Margiela. On the other side. It, 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 what's her name, gosh? Mrs. Black Lure. It's amazing. It's extraordinary. She, you know, she repositioned the sleeves to make them more feminine. So originally it was a 1929 man's tailcoat. She cut off the tails and yeah. um, redid the trousers to make a skirt out of it. And, you know, it's a very chic suit. But those stories I find interesting. And, and it was an example of repurposing in 1943, upcycling in, in 1943. And changing interpretations of fashion is really interesting and people always sort of say oh you know once a dress comes into the museum it's it's the end of its life and I disagree I think that it Mm. is kept alive through interpretation and you know we have one of Chanel suits for example this this is Chanel the Chanel suit it's been it's been in so many different exhibitions depending on the interpretation so it was initially the white couture one white couture one just by locating this one suit in different exhibitions and different interpretations just layers it constantly layers it with more and more meaning so living in the times we're living in, I'm just finding it really exciting to, you know, go into, literally go into the archives and discover those stories in more detail. But c- could you imagine in an ideal world, um, obviously right now, there are decades and actually centuries of injustices that need to be addressed. And, mm. and so there's, a, there's an acute sensitivity on so many levels. But in an ideal world, a balance is struck, a sort of recompense is made with the past. And I don't know how many years that would take. Maybe it would be 
50, maybe 100, maybe a couple of hundred, but eventually everything that was part of fashion is accepted and celebrated and contextualized. And we go back to celebrating craft and creativity and technique and originality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's also, you know, Andrew's whole proposition, I think, you know, behind this amazing exhibition, you know, about time. So there is two sorts of time. But it's interesting that this linear time is also not cyclical time. The Kalachakra of Eastern thinking or feminine time that we've been in sort of colonial kind of clock in clock off commuter time and maybe this whole you know if you take the symbolism of time of what Andrew's created that actually this taps back into the way we look at fashion and how things are made and how it takes time and it and actually that's what you know makes it precious and it has a a different sort of value. You know, it's like, look, I saw something about rock has something called the weaver's quest, which is like the whole borrow techniques of the Japanese. It's like, it's like 175 years old. It's it's like wonderful, all these things that are now coming to the surface. Um, I find it really thrilling. But Amanda, it's so interesting. It's what you said earlier about, I when I started off doing the exhibition, you know, I was fascinated by different types of time. Yeah. It, it was it got too complicated, but I initially I had I had a section on women's time, I had a section on queer time, I had a section on black time. Yeah. It was so beautiful. And I thought, you know, one way to do this is I think we may have spoken about it before, and I've been trying to convince the museum's director to maybe do it, is I love the idea of remapping the museum. It's very difficult to, you know, the Met has borrowed physically that the organization of the Met is based on a European model. So it has a very colonial organization. Yeah. Or Eurocentric. And we can't change it. It's too expensive, you know. Yeah. If you were to work with a cartographer or to work with an artist and you remapped the museum, you make these connections, you address these imperialistic notions or these colonial notions within the physical layout of the museum by remapping it, simply remapping it. You think that how, how much of that historically was male imperialism and yeah. you counter that with representation. And going forward, you, you imagine that fashion's contribution could be to embrace representation. And that, obviously, the question then is, how do you present the representation? I mean, we have traditionally had fashion shows. Does it seem outmoded now to have a big fashion show? Is it more interesting to have what John did with Maison Margiela, those incredible films he did with Nick Knight? Incredible. Where you are embedded in his creative process. Or with Dries van Noten, with um, working with Vivian Sassen, with the photography and the, and the film on an iPhone. And, you know, what is the most exciting, relevant, persuasive mode of representation for fashion moving forward? What happens to the fashion show is that it's really important that there are fashion institutions like at the Met, because I don't know if fashion shows will ever return in the way that they were. It's funny, Tom misses it and he feels as if they ran efficiently. You know, he felt as if the fashion show and the fashion week was efficient in terms of the calendar and production. And he felt as if, oddly enough, not doing it has made him realise how much it did work. But maybe you don't have to rely on that structure in that way, that there can be a structure, but it doesn't have to be structured 
so rigidly for everybody at the right time. I mean, I do believe that I like the idea that designers show when they're ready. Mm-hmm. And how and how they how they're ready. When, how, yes, yeah. You did a movie by Kenneth Nicholson. It's a short film that he did about his collection. It was really moving. A young uh, black designer in in America. I think there's filmic collaborations are interesting, or just collaborations in general. But I was talking the other day to somebody, and I, I said, "Would it be? Is it too extreme? Like to use the model of the Olympic Games, where every year a city bids." for the city and you you go to Johannesburg and and it's the city of fashion for or you go to you know Nairobi it's every city and you know you show there it's a way of showcasing local talent and local design and collaborations and it's it's a different model completely I do think that that probably wouldn't work remotely for production or anything like that but just thinking madly and outside the box like the city of culture idea then completely every year or it changes from one city to the next it's a way of decentralizing fashion it's a way of decolonizing fashion it's a way of experiencing fashion differently and showing fashion differently and investing money in those cities too it's just something I was thinking about, you know, whether is that a possibility? But I don't know. It's just a, a time to think idealistically with big ideas. I think a key thing is collaboration. Uh, and, and I do think that one of the biggest grounds for hope in what we're seeing in fashion now is that a new generation of designers seems naturally, instinctively collaborative. I mean, it's true that if you ever judge these competitions, I know you do because I see you at them. When you see designers from all over the world talking to each other and the commonality... Oh, it feels is, so is good. A, it's one of the most yeah. inspiring things, yeah. that there is a common language. You come away thrilled. And they have never had the opportunity to talk to their peers on the other side of the world in such an intimate, immediate way. Because they're there in these little kind of cubicles, you know, cheek by jowl, literally... And I think they're there for three days. And over the three days, they become like this, this family. And they stay in touch. Mm-hmm. And now, Andrew, you draw these people together and provide a platform that, as a broadcaster in a way as well, you know, n- not something that brings everything in together, but something that just explodes things. Because you have such massive audiences and... You know, I, I, I'm standing in the, the queue for the McQueen show. Mm. I, I was behind this old couple from Hawaii who'd already been two or three times. And that was not the power of fashion. That was the power of something else. It was Lee. It was the power of Lee, honestly. I think he was able but, to yeah, he touch was. you emotionally in a way that no other designer has done before or afterwards. This, these visceral feelings that he would... <sighs> get out of you it was you know whether you it was fear or disgust or beauty or well, do you remember that 2001 show in the with the glass box with the vase vase yes maybe viscerality maybe that viscerality is such a primarily human response For that all it of transcends us. all division absolutely and that everybody can come together in this spot where more than anything they feel totally human Oh, my God. Can you imagine if fashion was the vessel for that kind of global, brave new world that was reshaped by the... Yeah, like this Garden of Eden without boundaries. Can you imagine? It's so exciting. I think that's exciting. 
been amazing, Tim and Amanda. Thank you so much. No, Andrew, Tim, honestly. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was wonderful to see you. Thank you. Bye. Love you. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released.